From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. My family and I have been going back to Mass in person for a couple of months now. In the before times, I used to dread going to Mass with our three kids, five and under, as it's more of a herding cats experience than a peaceful one. There are so many Cheerios on the floor. But I genuinely look forward to it now. As Joni Mitchell sings, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? And now that we have Mass again, after more than a year away, I'm grateful to be back. In this spirit, I invited my guest today onto the show to talk about five things he loves about being Catholic. Thomas Groom is a professor of theology and religious education at Boston College's School of Theology and Ministry. He's also a prominent author and one of the very best keynote speakers I've ever heard. He has an incredible ability to make difficult concepts clear and engaging, often using his fabulous Irish storytelling skills in his work. I left our conversation energized about my faith, which is not something that has been consistently true throughout the pandemic. I hope Tom's enthusiasm and joyful spirit give you a spiritual boost too. Don't forget to subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Well, Tom Groom, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Mike, and thank you for inviting me. I'm privileged. No, I'm excited to to talk to you today. So just to set people up for what they can expect, um, we I sent you an email. I'm a, a big fan of yours, your writing and, and speaking. And um, I, you know, I've been thinking like, you know, I, I'm kind of down on church in a lot of ways. Uh, sometimes I feel like I can be in a negative space um, around, around like different church. I don't know, church happenings, things that people say. And I, I just like, you know what? I want to get out of that mode. My family, we're just going back to mass maybe six or eight times now together. Um, I want to like kind of reconnect with some of those things about being Catholic that uh, I love. So I thought, you know, let me reach out to Professor Groom, see if we he can like maybe pick some of his favorite things. We can do some like, I think they call this appreciative inquiry, right? Like starting from our strengths, things worth celebrating. Uh, I feel like this, we could all use a little pick me up. So that is what we're doing. We're bringing some, hopefully some like some sunshine, uh, some reflecting on the good without necessarily saying like, hey, we can ignore all the challenging stuff. But like today, let's let's do like some things that from the tradition that we love. So, so that's why we've asked you to do uh, essentially five things. And so we're going to get to those in a minute. But first, for folks who might not be familiar um, with you and your work, maybe you could uh, start by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I've been at Boston College since before you were born, Mike, uh, at least. I'm there 43 or four years. I obviously went there just after I made my my confirmation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But I was a very young professor, uh, recently graduated at 28, 29 from uh, Columbia University and uh, Union Theological Seminary. And um, I went off and taught for a year at Catholic U in Washington. And then Richard P. McBrien, who was a great, great mentor in my life, he was the uh, prominent theologian at Boston College at the time, he heard me giving a talk at the East Coast Conference. There used to be a great gathering called the East Coast Conference. It has deceased now, but he heard me speak there and he came up to me and said, how would you like to work at Boston College? So I said, oh, you know, Will a cat drink milk? Uh, so off I went to BC, and it was the best decision, one of the best decisions of my life. Uh, and I've been very happy there ever since. And I've written a good deal um, on, uh, especially at the interface of theology and education, religious education, catechesis. Uh, probably my most successful uh, popular book was a book called What Makes Us Catholic. And it, it has done better than it deserves. Uh, in sales and what have you. But I've also written children's curricula uh, from kindergarten. I've written curricula from kindergarten to seniors in high school and all along the way. And uh, so I've written tomes that uh, get used in doctoral seminars uh, that I wouldn't recommend to anybody. Um, I've required students to read them, but I've never recommended them. And uh, uh, because they're kind of, as I say, graduate level texts, you may have had to read one or two of them yourself, Mike, in your own formation. Uh, but then I've written the more popular things as well, uh, like What Makes Us Catholic. And I've one coming out, I'd be my, probably my last great big book uh, called What Makes Education Catholic? And uh, coming out from Orbis in another three or four months. So I'm blessed with good health still and go on teaching at Boston College. I direct, I've been the director of their, their PhD. We have a very successful PhD 
in theology and education. And I've been the director of that since Methuselah, uh, something like 40 <laughs> years. But it's been a very successful program. It's had very fine graduates that are making tremendous contributions to the life of the church uh, throughout the world. And uh, so that's been a, a real, a real uh, positive part of whatever legacy I have. Certainly that doctoral program will be a significant part of it. So, okay, I think that's enough for now, Mike. Uh, well, yeah, I have a follow-up question. I said we're going to be in some like positive spaces today, though, of course, my first question is about religious education If before we get into your, your five. So like that is something that is like always discussed, you know, at in church conferences, at in dioceses, at parishes. How do we, how do we do this, especially reaching young people, not just young people, they're, they're adults too, are often, um, we're, we're working with them in terms of faith formation and, and lifelong catechesis but right now i think there are big questions about how do we do this and we can't well that's like a whole nother topic obviously yeah uh, but, i'd be but, happy to come back to you <laughs> but but I, I have a very simple kind of a response that i sometimes i'm preparing for summer school and i was using it in my first class uh that's not it's another month or so but i prepare way ahead of time but in many ways what is good what makes for good religious education i have a very simple response it takes good religion and it takes good education. And if you have good, good faith, a good faith and a good education, you'll have good education and faith. But it has to be a positive, life-giving uh, presentation of our faith tradition. Uh, and then it has to be done effectively, uh, just simply to tell people about it or to lecture them about it or to uh, tell them to sit up and pay attention and then to deliver it. It'll never arrive. But there are ways, and I suppose most of my life has been fashioned around trying to create an effective pedagogy for teaching our faith. Uh, I suppose that's the core of my, my life work. And uh, there is a powerful way, I think, and we see it mirrored in the public ministry of Jesus, where he constantly engaged the everyday lives of ordinary people. Almost every parable or metaphor or simile analogy is from the life of the people around him. You know, the reign of God is like, you know, sorting fish. The reign of God is like a woman baking bread. The reign of God is like uh, a sower going out to sow seed. He was, he was talking about people's ordinary lives. So he had this tremendous capacity to connect with people's lives. We have to do the same. And then in the midst of that, he did indeed proclaim his gospel and did it with authority. So it wasn't just a, it wasn't just a discussion leader. Uh, he also had lots of powerful things to say about the reign of God and what have you. So he, he brought, and, and then he brought people back then and invited them to what I think was a living faith. Uh, in other words, and I summarize it by saying he brought people, he took their own lives and invited them to reflect on those lives. And sometimes he turned their life out, their world upside down. Uh, you know, that the, the Samaritan as well is, is uh, the good guy, uh, the neighbor, the, the, par of the uh, uh, prodigal is welcomed home. Uh, Lazarus goes home to God or the rich man to hell. I mean, he was turning people's world upside down. So he began with their own realidad, as Paulo Freire, my great mentor, uh, would say. He began with people's own reality. He got them to reflect upon it, sometimes critically and questioningly, uh, and got them to think a whole new way. But in the midst of that, he proclaimed his gospel, uh, his good news of the reign of God. And then invited them to see for themselves and to hear for themselves constantly. Blessed are those who have the eyes to, to the eyes to see and the ears to hear. He wanted people to take it and make it their own, rather than simply submitting to it out of authority or something. And um, and many people joined and walked with them, and many walked away. But I sometimes summarize it as, as his approach was bringing life to faith and bringing faith to life. And that was the constant dynamic of his teaching throughout his public ministry. So I have my, I have the, the, my own approach is very much modeled on that life to faith, faith to life type of dynamic. But you're probably familiar with it from your own studies across the years. And, uh, but it, it has been effective and there's no surefire way to do it. Uh, but when it comes to formal catechesis, it takes good pedagogy and good faith. And if you put the two together, you'll have good faith education, educating in faith. This is, I think, a good start to getting into our, our main topic today, the, the, keeping in mind for me anyway, that so much of faith starts with this encounter with a person, right? The, the person of, of Jesus and is a relationship uh, and starts there um, and is not things that we often spend like the most time debating or talking about or things that get the headlines, um, just kind of jump past that to hot button issues. But just kind of start with this idea of this relationship with God who wants to be in relationship with us kind of modeled in 
the way that, that Jesus uh, approaches people, as you're describing. And so kind of growing out of that relationship, that encounter, we, you know, we have uh, our tradition that, again, I want to dig into through these these five things you've lifted up out of many you, you could have chosen. So I have this list here you sent me ahead of time. And so why don't we uh, get jump right into it and um, I'll, I'll set you up and then you can tell me why you put it on your list and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about each one. So uh, the first one in terms of what you like about being Catholic, you, you said uh, the church's understanding of the person as essentially good. So um, what do you mean and, and why is it number one on your list? Well, I think overall, Catholicism proposes a very positive anthropology, understanding of the human person, a very hopeful one. Uh, uh, now, we're capable and terribly capable of doing dreadful things. And yet, even if we do, there's always mercy. Uh, you know, Pope Francis talking about God's name is mercy. But that our, our faith tradition, it was a great debate. And of course, the theologians still debated. And some people would say, well, you know, uh, Augustine had a more negative anthropology than, a, than Aquinas. And that's probably true. But overall, the st tradition stands for a very resolute um, conviction that we're still made in the image and likeness of God. Uh, or as Karl Rahner would put it, God's original grace was never erased by whatever we mean by original sin, that we're still more graced than sinful. Um, and um, when you go back into those early texts, Genesis 1, we're made in the image and likeness of God. Uh, Genesis 2, chapter 7 or 9, I believe it is, we're alive by the very breath of God, that God breathed the breath of God's own life into Hadam, into the earth person, uh, often mistranslated as man. Uh, but into the earth person. And the earth person, Adam became nefesh, became alive with the life of God. So we're alive with the life of God. The blood flowing through your veins and my veins this morning, Mike, are, is an expression of God's own life within us. And that that life was never banished. It was never quenched. The spark of that can never be quenched. It's always there. And I think that's the classic Catholic understanding of our human of our human estate, that is basically good. We're capable of dreadful things. You know, I always say to my students, read the more, read, well, they don't read the morning paper anymore, but check the news or the pages of history. And yet we're, we, are, we basically have a hopeful understanding of our human condition. And even when we blow it and sin boldly, there is still always mercy. Uh, and there's no unforgivable sin. Uh, that good thief was welcomed home into God's presence. Uh, even though he'd probably committed some dreadful things. Um, so it's basically a positive outlook, a hopeful outlook on ourselves, especially that we are capable of great, uh, good and great things. And, uh, and when we fall short, God's mercy is always there for us. We've no, in Catholic polity, there's no unforgivable sin. Some traditions have such a thing, but we don't. Um, so it's, it's essentially a positive outlook on the human person, on our human estate. Uh, that uh, I love that. I love being at Boston College because there is a deep, uh, and a Jesuit. I mean, there's nobody more hopeful for the human condition than Ignatius was. But it's, it's not unique to the Jesuits. It's that the Jesuits are classically Catholic, uh, especially in this regard, and especially in Ignatius that we can, Ignatius's whole sense, that we can discern and decide for ourselves what's the best thing to do with our lives. And God's grace will support us to carry the banner and the flag for the reign of God and make great contributions and the sky is the limits and, and uh, ever to excel and all this kind of good rhetoric that comes out of the Jesuit, one of the red Jesuit tradition. Uh, it's classic. It's classic Catholic anthropology understanding of the human condition. There are two things that come to mind to me listening to you there. One, your, your mention of mercy, which is again, a favorite word of Pope Francis. We had that year of mercy that was celebrated. Uh, and so like the way you're talking about this to me, how it's kind of baked into the Catholic worldview, I think of like the sacrament of reconciliation, this the sense that like, it's kind of understood that we're going to mess up and then we can come for forgiveness and love and healing and then we're going to go back and mess up again but that it's always it's always there so there's that kind of cycle of uh sin but then the mercy and redemption and reconciliation 
kind of built into what we think our life will be like. So I, I was thinking of that, that kind of, you know, that's in that DNA, that this is going to keep happening. But then, as you were saying, like, that grace always available. And the second thing, so you like talking about the person as essentially good. I also think of like a Catholic kind of sacramental worldview as seeing all things as created by God and, and, and all things as good. And, uh, the creation is good. And, and in many ways, that's kind of my, my second. These are two sides of the same coin uh, because there's the understanding of ourselves, our anthropology, uh, that's very positive. And then there's also what you're referring to now, I suppose the fancy name would, for, would be our cosmology. In other words, our outlook on life. Like what's the basic Catholic outlook on life? And that our outlook, outlook on life in the world, is it a meaning? Is it a purpose? And there's this deep conviction that it's graced, that it's all graced, and that God's grace permeates the ordinary and the everyday of our lives. That Ignatian uh, song of the sea God in all things. And I think that's a bit exaggerated. There's some things I don't see God in at all, like racism, uh, sexism homophobia, and so on. And yet, predominantly, the world is graced, and the world is the theater of God's grace. And it's where God's grace is, is always at work. Now, what do we mean by God's grace? Well, we could debate that for a long time. But to me, God's grace is, a fan- grace is another name for God's effective love. In other words, God's love for us is not a, a love that's off up in heaven, wherever heaven might be. Uh, to use old metaphors, um, but rather it's at work in the midst of the world. God's grace is effective in my life. It empowers me. It doesn't control me or manipulate me or, or program me. I'm still a, a covenant partner with God, and yet God's grace is always available. And I love the tradition, and Vatican II summarized it again. It was a 2,000-year tradition that this grace of God is available and, and uh, uh, Vatican II put it wonderfully well, in a manner known only to God is available to all humankind. In other words, even if you're not an Irish Catholic, uh, <laughs> you still are graced. Uh, and it's available to all humankind by a, in a way you know, known only to God. And I love, I settled for that. So that that sense that God's grace is always at work in our lives and in our world, but it's that, that it is this partnership that we kind of, we work with God, God works with us. We do it together rather than going it alone or asking God to do it all for us. Um, that sense of grace being at work and seeing grace at work and recognizing grace at work in the ordinary and the everyday. Yes, as Catholic Christians, we claim uh, to have seven high points, as it were, of God's grace at work in the world and the seven sacraments. But they, they're simply the tips of the iceberg. Uh, it's like seven great icebergs, and I forget my science, but I know something like nine-tenths of the iceberg is underwater. You only see about a, a tenth of it over the, over the surface. So in other words, the seven sacraments are like the tips of icebergs that just simply reflect a whole world of grace that, that's beneath the water, and that is always there for us. And in a sense, then it makes life, it gives us the, it calls us to invite, it invites us to live into a, an ultimate horizon, a transcendent horizon, to have a deep sense that our life, that we come forth from God in order to journey home to God, and that God is with us and empowering us ever along the way. Uh, and they were never without the presence of God and the grace of God in our lives, no matter how far we've fallen uh, from the ideals and from our, from our rhetoric or our, our teachings. Um, but that it, it lends meaning to life and a purpose to life, uh, which is, is a desperate thing for all. We all need that. I mean, without it, life becomes very difficult and dull and so on. Um, and, and not only does it, it lend meaning, but it lends hope along the way. Uh, and that there is always hope for us. There's, as we said already, there's always mercy. Um, yeah, so I was going to make another point there, and I kind of got lost in my, in my train of thought. Um, but it, 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 it is a, a lovely part of the tradition at its best, this sense of God's grace at work in our lives, and, and, and gives us tremendous hope and tremendous possibility. And 
And also, hurry back, another point I was going to make, it also calls us into an ethic. It calls us into community, it calls us into relationship, it calls it, but it also, it, it gives us a sense of ethic. And I suppose it's amazing how many people now seem devoid of, of an ethic. Like, they can, how can anybody tell uh, 30,000 lies and people hardly even notice it anymore? Uh, that this person is lying, or whatever it is, um, it's almost like, yeah. Uh, but if if we have a sense of God and God's grace at work and God calling us uh, into covenant to live as people of God, to live as good people, that can be a powerful uh, inspiration uh, for a, for an ethic for, uh, in our lives. It can get us to do good things. It can invite us to do good things. It can prompt us to do good things and to avoid doing bad things. It's amazing how many thought leaders now are beginning to talk about the need for a spiritual grounding, especially of a public ethic. If we're to have a public ethic, a social ethic in our in our societies, that it, it that the purely philosophical grounding of that is not convincing enough that we need some kind of a spiritual warrant for living well and, and doing the good. Uh, and they were more likely to live an ethical life uh, if we have some sense of the transcendent horizon of our lives. I want to go back to one image you used in, in that answer about kind of the, the seven sacraments as these tips of these icebergs. And it reminded me of uh, when I saw you give a talk once I think you're taking responses from the, the crowd and people talking about like kind of encountering God through a sunset or through music or through a person or whatever. And these kind of small S sacraments where we could see God at work. And then talking about how, like if you kind of recognizing God in those moments, then like when we show up at mass, the idea that God would come to us through bread and wine, like almost makes more sense. Like it's kind of easier to picture that or to imagine that or to believe it uh, when you're experiencing it, the other parts of your your life um which i've kept with me and thinking like if i'm at mass and i'm uh like not again <laughs> with, with the little kids i'm never really engaged but like at times i feel like spiritually dry i think like sure. have i been connecting with those things where i encounter god in those smallest sacraments have i like been a, just taking time to appreciate nature or music or, or my family enough um so i i love that image you used that's lovely and, and mike if i could add to that you know one of the this is this one may surprise you uh, this is an adult, an adult comment by the way but isn't it amazing that god can come to us through bread and wine and through love making your love making with your wife is a sacramental uh you know the old catholic tradition was that a marriage is not a sacrament until it's consummated that marriage does not take place at the altar it takes place in the in the in the marriage bed. The first time people make love is when it becomes a sacramental union. So that the, the sacramentality of our sexuality is a lovely part of the tradition, and of course one that's very often overlooked and forgotten. And we often say something that's quite different and even the very opposite. But it, there is a rich tradition of human sexuality there by way of being sacramental. That that again goes goes. It's it's the two thousand year tradition. And so if, if grace is available to us in all of these different ways and like God always there with this effective love at work, we don't know that it's easy to get distracted from that or to kind of put blinders on like horses in Central Park and not notice. I just like what are do you have like any things like for you that you use or suggest for like people like growing in that awareness that God's grace is always available? Yeah, and I think I think again I've got a very simple answer, Mike. In fact, it's going to be the the fourth point, so we're going to skip a point here on my list. But in a sense, your own sighting of the Eucharist is is a wonderful uh, resource that we need. The Eucharist, we need Mass, we need to gather with the faith community. We need to we need to hear the Word of God uh, proclaimed for our lives, and then hopefully unpacked and, and uh, communicated to us effectively through good preaching. And uh, we need to sing uh, the praises of God with good theology and so on. And we need to receive uh, the, the stand and uh, to sort of recite the creed and to kneel and to, to, to walk up and present our bodies and receive the Eucharist and so on. I'll go back down and, and, uh, 
and give thanks and, and be aware of the gift of the, the real presence. We talk about it as the real presence. We even talk about it as a body and blood presence of the risen Christ to us. So I think that's we need the church. We need the community. We need the faith. We need the practices. Uh, if we're to sustain a sacramental consciousness, if we're to sustain an understanding of life as a journey home to God, if we're to keep life if we're to keep hope alive for ourselves and for our world, uh, we need to constantly renew and sustain that. It, it just doesn't happen once and we're done. Uh, it's a, a lifelong journey. And gathering with a faith community and uh, broken as it is and hopeless as it is at times and scandalous as it, as it can be, uh, yet it's, it's God does not choose perfect instruments, clearly. Um, but uh, which is not to cover uh, for, for defaults and dreadful scandals or anything like God forbid that we'd ever try to, to, to uh, bless those. But, but the church for all of its brokenness and inadequacy yet is, brings us and offers us uh, the bread of life, uh, which is for the life of the world. As John chapter six has Jesus say, uh, it's the bread of life for the life of the world. And it's the bread of the scriptures, but it's the bread of the Eucharist as well. It's the bread of the community. It's the bread of our gathering together. And I suppose that's, we've, we've been terribly bereft of that with this darn COVID, uh, you know, and, and logging on uh, to internet or something is, is a very poor substitute. So I can't wait to get back uh, to, uh, to, to the, to, being able to go to mass and receive the Eucharist, but also to see my friends and say hello and, you know, and reach out and reconnect and so on. I think without that, I don't think there's any solo journey home to God. Now, some traditions have that. I remember when I first came to this country many years ago, I was on a plane coming back from Los Angeles and I was reading a book that had the name, uh, Jesus in the title. I always tell people, don't be too impressed. I, I get paid to read books like this but uh, this woman when the when the meal cart came and in those days they used to serve a meal um when i put down my book she said to me sir can i ask you a question and i said yes of course no problem she said, she said are you saved and i'd never heard that question i don't make in any way to make fun of that spirituality or tradition but i'd never heard it and i, <laughs> I said to myself geez i wonder am i saved and then i began to say well i think i think so well maybe well, i'm not sure i've got a good day yeah but, but. and then I, just to get out from under the pressure i said to her how about yourself are you saved and she said yes kansas city june 9th 1978 or whatever the year was gave me the date the time the place when she was saved now i don't want it in any way uh, deride or, or belittle that spirituality, but it's not Catholic at all. You can't just reach a point of arrival and be home and dry for yourself. She, she was talking about herself. She was saved. I wanted to say to her, well, how about your husband? How about your kids? How about the community? Because you'll definitely be asked about them uh, when you appear at the pearly gates. Uh, if you're by yourself, Peter will say to you, where's your husband? <laughs> I mean, we have to, my point is, I, we have to bring each other along and we need each other to move along in this faith of ours. And there is no private personal salvation that I've, that is a point of arrival uh, where I can then rest on my laurels. Uh, it's a lifelong journey and uh, into eternity. And as Augustine would have it, our, our hearts are restless until they finally rest in God. So you had kind of brought us through this response into your reflections on the Eucharist, which you had put in your 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 list of points. And I was talking to someone recently who kind of reverted to Catholicism after a long time away, returned, whatever you would word you would use. And she was saying that like one of the things as like an adult coming back to it that like she had to really sit with at first before she decided whether or not she was in was, um, am, I, am I supposed to eat my friend? Like what? trying to come to like figure out like what Eucharist meant, why were, are we doing this? And I'm sure like when, again, if you were to talk to your, your friend on the airplane and start getting into questions about Catholicism, that would probably come up. So like when, when you have people who are confused by that, like what what's the response to that? Do we, why do we eat our friend? Well, it's the, in some ways it's, it's why the early Christians sometimes didn't use the explicit words of consecration, like in a lovely old document, the Didache, which may be from the very first century of the church. It, there's a Eucharistic prayer, but it never mentions body and blood. And they say that one of the reasons was probably because by then the Romans were beginning to spy 
on Christians. And one of the accusations the Romans made against Christians was that they were eating flesh and drinking blood at their worship services, uh, and uh, which were punishable crimes. So you, we, we can't, there's a, a lovely way in which we can't take it literally, and there's a lovely way in which we could think or imagine about it, that we are indeed encountering the real presence of the risen Christ through these symbols. Now, they're still bread and wine. That's how they taste. And yet, somehow or other, their substance, uh, their, their, their outer appearance, their bread and wine, but their substance has become the presence of the risen Christ. And I like to think of it as the presence of the risen Christ to me. And when I do, you know, one of the funny, I'm an old traditional Catholic, Mike, and when I go back down after receiving the Eucharist, that's one of my most deeply personal times of prayer with Jesus. I can really talk up a storm to Jesus, thank him for coming and adore him for, and ask him and repent of my sins and make new resolutions and all the rest of it. And I actually get, I, I prefer no singing at all at communion time. Now, I think I'm a minority of one in the church at this stage, but I always prefer to go back down and be very quiet after receiving the Eucharist. So I never join in singing. Now, I'm happy other people are singing, but I never join in singing the, the Eucharistic, the uh, communion hymn, because uh, I prefer to talk to Jesus. It's a unique time and an intense moment of presence to each other. Uh, so, you know, I think there's a way to, to uh, yeah, that, that can be a tremendous resource of hope and of, of, of sense of blessing and what have you in one's life. I think of being sent then from you know, Eucharistic celebration and uh, Pope Benedict you know, talked about how like a, a Eucharistic celebration that doesn't then extend toward concrete acts of charity and justice is in, inherently fractured. So it's this this meal that equips us, which is one of your points as well. We're jumping back to the one number three yeah, on your faith, list. And that faith be lived. It, it, right. it, it, there's, I mean, there, it, there's no, it has to send us out into the world. You know, Augustine said, go and become what you have received. In other words, go and be the body of Christ in the midst of the world and, and reaching out, especially to those in need and uh, and how we will be, remember, it brings us back to how we will be judged. I was hungry, you gave me to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. So it sends us out into the world to live our faith. And I, that's something that has clarified for me in my later years that ultimately our faith, sure, there's great beliefs to our faith and uh great convictions that we're invited to embrace and so on. But it's not just, it's not just belief. Uh, it's really how we live our lives. That faith is, it, it has to be alive. It has to be lived. It has to be life-giving for ourselves and for others. It has to be alive in the sense that it's vital. I always loved his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. He was saying that his gospel would be like fresh water, spouting up, springing up to eternal life. Gushing, uh, the, the scholar says a better translation, they're gushing up to eternal life. So that our faith always has to be alive and vital and, and uh, uh, onward and, and ongoing rather than a point of arrival. And then it has to be a, 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 a living faith. It has to get done. You know, it's not the one who says, Lord, Lord, who enters the reign of God. It's the one who does the will of my Father. And, um, and and then it has to be and then it has to be life giving for oneself and for others, so that it is the way. And he described it himself. The original Christians were were always referred to as followers of the way, uh, and I think it was the way of life. It wasn't followers of the dogmas or the doctrines? Now I'm not disparaging dogmas and doctrines; They're, they can be helpful as well. But primarily, uh, it's a way of life. I think about the. Uh... Daniel Berrigan response to kind of where faith lives. Is it like in your heart or in your head? And his kind of uh, cheeky responses, uh, <laughs> no pun intended, faith is where your ass is at, right? That it's about our, our kind of our commitments. We're doing with our hands, like where, where we're showing up, um, how it, the, the source and summit of our faith in the Eucharist sends, what implications does it have for the choices that we make uh, the rest of the week? Well, we've hit four. In, um, in a nice kind of integrated way. People even haven't been, we haven't done them like uh, perfectly set apart from each other because they all kind of, you know, are connected obviously. Flow. Yes, they do flow. So we have, we had, we started with the person is essentially good and then talked about how grace, God's effective love is ever at work in our lives and world and God is in partnership with us. Uh, then we went into there to the Eucharist as the bread of life for the life of the world, faith uh, as good works, 
how the we're sent forth from the Eucharistic celebration uh, to do good work in the world. And then um, the last one on your list uh, is a little different. Purgatory. Now, purgatory is one I've come to appreciate more recently, but certainly one that I think befuddles a lot of folks and one that uh, we, Catholics get asked about a lot. Um, so, yeah, help us unpack well, purgatory a bit. Well, I was being a little whimsical, Mike, as you imagine, as you can imagine, by putting it on there. I mean, who wants to go back to talking about limbo and purgatory and all these all these neighborhoods that we were supposed to have, and all of them were down below, you know, heaven was up above, the, the, the hell and purgatory and, and limbo were down below. Uh, so, so in a sense, it was uh, ah, kind of ridiculous, really. Um, but I had a moment recently when I was in a public forum, and I want to be very careful of this, I don't want to identify the person, um, a prominent person had just died, and um, I, we were being interviewed about about the person, and um, who had made some pretty egregious mistakes, shall we say, and uh, not to sit in judgment, but I think uh, they could readily be talked about as sins. And uh, the people on the panel with me, uh, and this was around the sex abuse, clergy sex abuse scandal. Um, the people on the panel, two or three people on the panel with me had been uh, victims and were speaking out of tremendous, deep, deep pain. So the interviewer said to me, so Professor did uh, name the person, uh, go to heaven. And uh, I was totally stumped because they say, oh yes, you know, God's mercy there, blah, 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 going straight to heaven. On the other hand, I didn't want to say, oh, it probably went to hell. Although, you know, that might be some people's uh, opinion. Uh, So I suddenly found myself saying, you know, I think that they probably had to spend a little time in purgatory. (laughs) And I remember thinking, maybe there was something of value in that that old uh, symbol, that, that even if we die and that we haven't put aside... Uh, we haven't forgiven the people we need to forgive, or we haven't been forgiven by the people that uh, we need mercy from, from whom we need mercy and repent and, and forgiveness. Uh, though we haven't, we still have debts that we owe. Uh, in other words, it isn't all hunky dory. By the time I die, there's a fascinating old Catholic conviction that we still could be readied and prepared to enter into the the eternal presence of God. And uh, there's something there about hope that endures even beyond the grave, beyond our death. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that I kind of thought, well, th- there was something there that, that is of, that's peculiarly Catholic. I mean, good Protestants don't believe in purgatory, and rightly so. And yet I found in that situation, I found myself saying, well, yeah, maybe not hell, maybe not heaven, but maybe there's an in-between when we finally get an opportunity to put right uh, the relationships that were broken, uh, the, the harm we have done, uh, the evils we've committed, that they can be forgiven even after death. So I found myself coming back to this old, old, old symbol that I never thought I would re-evaluate or re-cherish. And yet I found something of promise in it. Sure. No, I do think it, it is a hopeful thing, isn't it? More than I sometimes it may be in our imagination of the seeming old-fashioned punishment stuff that can be mixed up with Catholicism, certainly. But as you're saying, I, it's that's hopeful to me uh, yeah. that like... And then, like the, I, I've heard too. I don't know again if this is like official church teaching, but like there's only one way you're going out of purgatory, right? Like you're not you're not going down out of no, purgatory. Yeah. <laughs> the, the idea is that you're being prepared, yeah, for uh, you know, for the, the presence, presence of God, right? Yeah. And, and it could be, you know, I mean, our God is a God of right and loving relationship. You know, within God's self, we talk about God as being a triune, loving relationship. God is one, and God is triune, a relation of, of of perfect love. How can you go into the the presence of perfect love, if somehow or other you're still in wrong relationship uh, with somebody, that you're still you're still 
got stuffed to sell. And if I could go back for a moment, uh, Mike, there was a brief story I was going to tell, but we're, we mentioned it and you mentioned in passing the, the possibilities of confession. And again, you know, the old days when you had to go to, I grew up with this kind of an Irish Catholicism, where the only way you could ever receive the Eucharist is if you first went to confession and you had to go to confession. In other words, you didn't receive the Eucharist. And you, so the, 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 you, you'd know the people who went to confession because they got to go to the Eucharist and they went to the early mass because they were fasting from midnight and so on. Now, thank God, we've moved away from that. And yet there's a value. And I, I have a dear friend, I leave him anonymous, um, that he was telling me this story recently he, he did a wrong by a dear friend. Uh, he didn't tell me what it was. I think it was something to do with a girl uh, that they both were courting. And uh, uh, yeah, but my friend Jack uh, did something that was egregiously wrong uh, to, the, to his friend. And of course, they became, they, they parted ways. Their friendship was broken. And then he heard that his friend was dying. Uh, and he desperately wanted to make up with his friend before he died. He knew he had wronged him and he wanted to apologize and ask forgiveness. The problem was that the friend had moved. He was originally from Greece and he'd moved back to Greece to die. So my friend Jack bought a ticket and flew to Greece to apologize and ask forgiveness from his old friend. And when he got there, his friend had died. But he'd left a message for Jack. The message for Jack was simple. Jack, go to confession. And Jack came back and had a heck of a time. He hadn't, he admitted himself, he hadn't been to confession in a long time. And he started out, you know, looking for, looking for a likely priest, you know, and he went to one church and, uh, you know, it didn't seem right. He went to a different church. So he went to about five or six different churches on a Saturday afternoon. But finally, uh, settled into one and went to confession. Uh, and he said it was like somebody had taken that hundred ton weight off his shoulders. He felt forgiven, both by his friend and by God. But it just brought me back again to, uh, we don't go, we don't need to go every week or every month or something or every peccadillo uh, that we're never ready and perfect, ready to receive the Eucharist. But we can say an act of contrition and ask God to forgive us. But there's still a value, even if it's only once a year when you're on retreat or something. There's still a value, to, I think, to that, uh, to that whole sacrament, uh, to present ourselves honestly and to receive the assurance of God's mercy. Yeah, there's something still there that... I hope we don't lose it. Uh, I think we have to reclaim it because in a ways we have lost it, but I think it's still there and we could kind of reclaim it. Uh, not in the old way that my grandparents, Lord rest them would, that they'd never dream of going to the Eucharist without going to confession first, as if that any sins, you know, they said damn twice and they, they kicked the dog once or something, you know. Um, but there's still a value there. No, oh, it's a beautiful story. I appreciate your, your sharing that and, and think as you're mentioning, you know, that physical feeling really, I can relate to that of something being lifted, thinking of, you know, the, the physical signs in our sacraments, whether it's bread and wine or oil or water, but then like there is that physical sense that, uh, that lifting, that feeling lighter, which I, I think of as, you know, in addition to the laying on of hands or the, the blessing of absolution. And, uh, but there's that, that physical sense of, oh, that light, lightning really is uh, the word I think of. So yeah, no, thank you for, for sharing that. And what a mercy from, uh, his friend from even, um, after his own life. Um, so, okay, great. The, I, I feel inspired. I feel reconnected with some, uh, some good things. So this has at least worked for me and I hope for other folks who come to it will work. Now, before I let you go, if you're willing, um, we are talking right at the beginning of our Ignatian year, which uh, listeners to the podcast will hear a lot about, um, celebrating this kind of 500th anniversary of the cannonball moment of, uh, Ignatius being hit at the battle of Pamplona, which leads to his convalescence, which, then leads to his conversion and the rest is history. So one of the, the things that Jesuits around the world uh, are you know, inviting people to reflect on are those cannonball moments in their own life when, when things were changed 
uh, maybe in an unexpected way, maybe from a, something difficult like a cannonball or maybe something not as painful as that. Um, but just maybe th- those moments that we knew things wouldn't be the same afterward or even maybe something we didn't even realize at the time. But as we look back at our, our life journey, the, those kind of uh, key moments that have led us to, to where we are. And so just curious if you have uh, any of those uh, from your own own journey you're well, willing to share. I, I think the one that came to mind when I saw your question, Mike, and this is not terribly exciting at all, but I was about... I think I was about 10 years old at the time, nine, and I had an older brother that I greatly admired. He was my hero, and rightly so. He deserved my admiration. He was a spectacular human being. And uh, he got ordained as a priest, and I was at his ordination. And then uh, in Ireland, in a place called Tipperary, uh, it's a long way to Tipperary, um, and uh, I just idolized this brother. And I was nine at the time uh, when he was ordained. And then it, we, he went off to America, as we would say. And I remember we took him down to Cove, which is an old port that leaves from so- the south of Ireland for New York. It's, there was the, the port of call of the big ships uh, coming and going. And we put him on the boat. It was six days to get to, to America. This was before planes crossed the Atlantic regularly. Um, and uh, I remember he wrote me a letter, uh, which was my first letter that I ever received, you know, when he got to America, he wrote to my mom and dad, of course, but he wrote me a special letter. And I always thought, you know, I'm really special to him. And I think I was, I mean, there was nine of us in the family, 10, actually nine that lived into adulthood. And, um, you know, we all had our deep relationships and different relationships with each other. The whole ecology of a large family is always interesting and the partnerships that emerge and what have you. But he and I were deeply bonded. I remember he wrote me a lovely letter uh, telling me about America and his trip over. And by then he'd gone out to work in Kansas and he was a wonderful priest, wonderful priest. He just went home to God uh, about two years ago. Um, he was about 16, 18 years older than I Um uh, but I remember uh, deciding to write him a letter uh, to him in response to my letter. Now, by now, I was a probably 10, and um, I was a fairly good writer in school, but, but not good handwriting. I have terrible handwriting. I always had all my life. But I could make up a letter. You know, I could tell a story. So I sat down and I wrote him a letter that I did hear. And in the letter, I decided to tell him that I was going to be a priest as well. And, I mean, I still believed in Santa Claus at this stage, but I knew in my heart of hearts that that somehow was going to be my decision. Uh, And when I think back on it, I always remember that letter. Now, a lot of it, I suppose, analyzing it was out of admiration for him. I wanted to be like him. Uh, And in some ways I've, I've, yeah, I've approximated him in my life. Uh, he was just a wonderful, saintly, holy man, uh, and a wonderful, a lot of fun, and all the all the other things we long for. But um, yeah, so that in many ways, and, and there is a sense in which I've never changed my mind. Uh, that was the beginning of a vocation, uh, a very a fairly specific sacerdotal vocation. That in many ways uh, it has altered. But it has also, in many ways, deepened, and I think continued uh, throughout my life. For people who aren't familiar, you are not an ordained priest, but have been. Well, I you was. Know, ordained. In, in, you yeah, were I was ordained. ordained, Mike. Yeah, and I spent oh, 18 years in priesthood. Okay. And then uh, resigned priesthood, got married. I'd have stayed in priesthood happily. I never wanted to leave priesthood, but I'd have been happy to stay. But I also uh, just wasn't wasn't happy living a solo celibate life by myself. I, li- I lived it. I actually tried to live it faithfully for 17, 18 years. But I remember saying to my spiritual director, I had just done a 30-day retreat, and I remember saying to my spiritual director, um, uh, George, uh, George, if I would put as much effort into charity as I have to put into celibacy, I would be a saint. Uh, it was just a terrible struggle. And it, it wasn't my gift. I didn't have the charisma. And so, I, as I said, I lived it uh, somewhat grudgingly for 17 or 18 years, more if you count the years in seminary, six years and eight years in seminary. Uh, over 20 years, I lived a celibate life. Um, but it was too much effort 
And I honestly, for me, I didn't see the point of it. It wasn't a source of holiness. I remember George asking me, uh, is it a source of holiness for you? And I would have to always say, no, George, it really is not. So I finally took the bull by the horns and resigned priesthood. But I went on then teaching theology and and I was very blessed uh, to be able to continue uh, as a professor of theology and so on at Boston College. And in many ways, uh, doing 90% of what I'd been done doing before. So do you feel like your current work is connected to that, that call, even from that, that early age? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Uh, you know, I, I still see it as deeply ministerial for sure. And if one wants to put a name on it, uh, a, a priestly function. And the, the, it's interesting, uh, the, the priest the, the, in, the, in Jeremiah chapter 18 has three characters, the priest, the wisdom figure, and the prophet. And the prophet kind of stirs people up. The wisdom people, kind, the wisdom people uh, tries to you know, bring them the wisdom of the tradition. The, the priest is more of a conserving role. The priest is the one who helps the community to remember and retells them the story uh, over and over, the story of God's saving work and leading them out of Egypt and so on. So the role of the priest in many ways was to remember the story and to retell the story. And in many ways that summarizes my life work as a catechist and as a, uh, as a religious educator, encouraging people to give access to the great story uh, of our faith in ways that connect with people's own stories. Uh, and that get invite them to live into the vision, the vision that is arises from the story. Yeah. So in a sense, I've seen a continuity. Sure. Well, I really appreciate your taking us into your story a bit and to helping us unpack some of our shared story uh, as a community of faith. And just really appreciate the the time to talk about this today. Again, as I was saying, I feel uh, uh, lightened and uh, energized, and uh, which is which is good for this time, kind of uh, emerging out of the pandemic, ready to to get back involved. Hey, Mike, thank you for the invite. I've enjoyed it as well. Great questions and great comments. Thank you. Thank you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.